Hello. Welcome. Hi. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you're staying safe, staying well. My name is Ellie Angel Mobs and I am the host of this incredible podcast called Living with Endo, the A to Z of endometriosis. It's proudly partnered with Endometriosis Australia. And we are all about getting the conversation going for an illness that affects one in nine Australian women and there is no cure. We talk all things endo. Now, March is our favourite month of the year because March is Endometriosis Awareness Month and the amazing crew at Endo Australia have created some fun, easy ways that you can take part in this month and help raise awareness and fundraise for education, more awareness and more research. Heap of fun ways to take part, including hosting a high tea. Yes, I like the sound of that where you get to eat, hang out with your besties and raise money for a fantastic cause. Plus, we've got a really exciting virtual event happening. So all of the details on this at our website, the number one source is endometriosisaustralia.org. That is also a place where you can check out some of the work from the lady we speak to in this episode. Her name is Rachel Burke. Now, she's written many blogs about her endo journey and she has got an amazing story to tell. Let's just say she has been through so, so much. Here is Rachel Burke, one of our endo champions. Hey, Rach, it's Ellie here. How are you going? Thank you so much for chatting. Thanks so much for having me. Let's hear all about your endo journey. How old were you when you first discovered the word endometriosis? I was 33, I think. Wow. Um, so not that, yeah, not that long ago. I'm, I'm just turned 37. For many years, I could imagine that you were battling with these bizarre symptoms and trying to get answers from doctors. When did the symptoms first start for you? Yeah, so it's strange looking back. I think I've had them since I got my first period. I got my first period when I was 13 or almost 14 and I bled for over a week. And at the time, you know, my mum had always had heavy periods. So I kind of just thought, you know, that's what everyone has. And then they were irregular throughout my high school. Never really thought much of that, but they were always, they were never painful, but they were always so heavy. I remember um, talking to my friends about like really hating my period. And when I finally, when we finally kind of compared, I suppose, um, they were kind of shocked. Like I, I would bleed so heavily for over a week each time. Um, so it's kind of changing a tampon and a pad every 40 minutes in the first couple of days. Gosh. Um, kind of, I remember, yeah, it was just, I, I hated it. I hated every minute of it. Did that not ring any alarm bells for you thinking this can't be normal well it was not the same as some of my friends but mm. my mom had always had really heavy periods um and they weren't and they weren't regular so I'd have quite quite long gaps between them so mm. I kind of just thought and they weren't painful it was just really heavy bleeding and so I thought oh well maybe this is just my lot in life I, I suppose well mum had it so it must be the same uh, did your mum ever get diagnosed with endo no she never did right yeah. Because there is so, that strong hereditary link, but it seems it may have been the case. Like, I think looking back, she definitely did have it. Mm. But yeah, at the time, I guess we just, I just didn't think much of it. And then it got a lot worse. In my, in my early 20s, I bled for nine months straight. So I'm not talking spotting. I'm talking, you know, like a heavy flow for nine months. Nonstop. And that was yeah and that was exhausting like 
I have so many questions. <laughs> How did you function for nine months having a period and bleeding? To be honest, I didn't really. Um, when it started, I just thought, oh, okay, this is, I hadn't had my period for a while and then I got it and it just never went away. And then I was buying, you know, I was buying tampons in bulk. Mm. Um, I was exhausted. I was, you know, um, anemic. I just felt like it was horrendous. I can't even imagine like, you know, I was missing work all the time. I look back on that now and I don't know how I survived it, but I, but I did. Given the blood loss and you mentioned that you were anemic, did you end up in hospital needing some iron infusion or any, 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 just anything to help you function? It was, um, yeah, it was, it was suggested at the time. I never actually ended up in hospital during that time, mm. but that's when I really started investigating what was going on. So I saw doctor after doctor, they diagnosed me with polycystic ovaries. Mm -hmm. but that didn't seem to, they couldn't figure out why I was still bleeding. So, you know, that, that doesn't seem like a common symptom. So then I started to try all of these different things. So popped me on birth control, which gave me terrible migraines. And that sometimes ended me up in hospital, tried menopausal hormone patches. I had to stick them on my, on my belly and, on, wow. um, and try them for a couple of weeks or months. Yeah. And Something you probably thought that you know in your late 20s early 30s ah oh, menopause won't need to worry about that until I'm older yeah definitely it was very odd and I, I mean at the time I would have done anything um mm. just I was like it needs to stop I asked for a hysterectomy I think when at the ripe old age of, of 21 wow I was like just just stop just just take it out but the doctors obviously wouldn't do that and then finally finally they settled on depo um provera uh that's just a it's a birth control that's injected every three months it's just progesterone and that seemed to help it. So I was just in love with it. I, <laughs> I, I would spot occasionally, mm. but I, w I wouldn't have my period and I stayed on it for 10 years. And think of the money you would have saved after not having to go and stock up on tampons and pads. <laughs> yeah. And just, I felt like, I just felt amazing. And I probably, you know, I was young and I wasn't really thinking about it. I wasn't seeing a regular doctor. Mm. So I just, just kept getting the injection. I thought whatever works. Um, this this will work for me. I didn't so, connect in my mind. At that moment, did they say this endometriosis word to you or they just thought it was polycystic and, oh, it's just hormones, whatever, you'll be right? Yeah, no. The word endometriosis was never mentioned. That gynecologist actually told me, he said, look, we don't know what's going on. We don't know much about, you know, your condition at the moment because it seems so rare. It's likely you're infertile. He kind of just said that, like, off the cuff. You probably never had children. But, you know, just if the depot is working, stay on it. That was the advice I got. And so, you know, I was gutted at the time in a, in a weird way about, you know, the potential of being infertile. But he had no right to tell me that. No, absolutely not. <laughs> and, and then I just kind of thought, well, you know, I'm just going to live my life. And, you know, if I'm not bleeding every day, that, mm. that will help me live my life. Yeah. <laughs> You're feeling good at the moment, it. so forget doing any more <laughs> investigative stuff. Let's just stick with the Provera. Kind of, yeah. So then kind of fast forward to my early 30s and I found a great GP and decided that I, I should probably come off the off the depot. I've been on it for a long time and I just thought, you know, like there's side effects for being on it for that long and I just thought I'd give it a go and see if I would natu um, naturally cycle. And that's really when everything else kind of, all of the other symptoms really ramped up. So um, I was getting nauseous, I was having diarrhea, I was exhausted and just 
the most intense pain, but even still, I never connected it to my period because it wasn't around my period. My periods kind of came back on and off, never regular. They were really heavy still, but I was so used to that. I was just like, oh, that's fine. And I really literally thought that I'd either hurt my back or pulled a muscle or something. I never connected all of the symptoms together. Wow. I look, yeah, I look back now and think how silly I was, but at the time, you know, you do what you can to get through the day. Absolutely. It's probably because as well, we're a very similar age. And when we were growing up, you'd sit there in, you know, the sex education classes and the teachers would talk about, oh, girls will get their periods and, oh, yeah, they'll be painful and you'll bleed. So it's kind of in the back of your mind, you're going, oh, yeah, that's just, that's just the norm. It's fine. Definitely. You just, I, for me, I just thought this was my, this was to be expected. And I never really connected any of the other symptoms that I was managing. And I, I, I would manage them um, altogether. But then they found a, a cyst growing on one of my ovaries. So I, ha- I went for an internal ultrasound because my GP thought it'd be good since I had this polycystic ovary um, diagnosis just to check things out and to see what was going on. And they found quite a large dermoid cyst on one of my ovaries. And so she sent me to yet another gynecologist. Um, who looked at the cysts and I said, can you take it out, please? Just the thought of something weird growing on one of my ovaries didn't, you know, instill me with a sense of confidence. Get it out now. <laughs> so I was like, please cut it out. And she interestingly refused to do the operation until I'd had children. Cause at that stage I was in my early thirties. And look, I'd never mentioned children to her. Um, I was with a, a partner at the time, um, the partner that I'm, I'm now married to, but I, you know, it was an odd conversation. She just outrightly refused. She said, it's not large enough um, to cause pain, the pain that you're experiencing, but um, if we take it out, it will be, do more damage than good. So I was at a bit of a loss, Like the pain at that point was getting so bad that mm. occasionally I'd have to, I mean, at its worst, I walked out to get some milk at the corner store one day and I had to lie on the pavement in the rain because <laughs> I couldn't stand up or yeah. sit down. It was that bad. Yeah, it, it is debilitating. It will cripple you. I've had that happen mm. to me before in a dog park and my husband had to come and rescue me. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't, I stupidly hadn't taken my phone. So I was just lying on the pavement <sighs> in the rain <laughs> looking like, yeah, but that was all I could do at the time. And I just, it was, yeah, it was horrendous. So bizarrely, I went to see a fertility specialist. I took my poor partner with me and it was the weirdest consultation, I think, or the funniest one that I've ever been to. Now, how long have had you and your partner been together at that moment of going to a fertility specialist? <laughs> um, let me think. It was probably two, two or three years. Right. So it it's still pretty- early days. <laughs> It was pretty early days. And look, we, we discussed the idea of children. We were both humming and ahhing about it, but we definitely, we definitely weren't trying in any way to have children. And the fertility specialist just looked at us like we were such idiots. Cause I, I said, look, I'd like to freeze my eggs. And he said, okay, look, how long have you been trying? And I was like, oh no, we haven't. And he's like, you do know how babies work. <laughs> and I was like, yes, we both do, but this is the reason why I'd like to freeze my eggs. And I explained that the other doctor wouldn't remove my cyst. And he just looked so confused. And he said to me, he's like, I'm not going to put you on IVF for no reason or start that process. Why don't we treat, why don't we treat what's actually your main issue? 
So he referred me to a yet another doctor and I promise I'm getting to, I promise I'm getting to my diagnosis. He looked at my scans, saw the cysts and that's when he decided to go in and he was the first person that mentioned endometriosis. He said, from everything that you've mentioned, it sounds like you're, you have endometriosis, but we'll do a laparoscopic operation. We'll go in, have a look, we'll remove the cyst. And yeah, so after that, that's when I had my diagnosis. Finally, you woke up and the doctor said to you those magical words, you've got endometriosis, yeah. which I, it's weird saying that they're magical, but when you've been battling something for so long and just being thrown to different doctors and trying to figure out what's going on, when you actually get told it, it's like, oh, thank God, I'm not crazy. It, it was such a relief. It was such a sad relief as well because right before the right before the operation, and I I know from friends and stuff, it was it's quite a common feeling. I was so fearful that they wouldn't find anything, that all of this was made up, that all of this was in my head, and you know I was just kind of complaining about periods that are supposed to be painful. So when they when he finally found it, and the words he said was it was everywhere, I just felt such a weird sense of relief to have a condition or a disease, which is terrible. It's an interesting one too, because if you've never really heard of it, you go, well, what, what on earth have been dealt with, huh? Mm. What did it do to your body? Where did they discover it? Yeah, so they discovered it pretty much everywhere apart from on the inside of my uterus. So it's on my bowel, my bladder, the uterus sacral ligament. I had a tethered ovary at one point and on the on the sigmoid colon, pretty much everywhere. Yeah, so it, it's had a field day growing in there. Yeah, and I've ended up having three surgeries in three years. And also during that time, they we decided to go on a hormonal treatment to, to stop my estrogen because that seemed to be helping. It's a bit of a controversial treatment, but after the first surgery, I was actually in more pain than I was prior. Mm, yeah. My symptoms were just kind of getting out of control. Like the bloating was, I was, I looked like I was six months pregnant kind of every day. I could, standing up was an issue, you know, simple tasks like doing the dishwasher was an issue. Um, and I was on so many um, painkillers that was just not working. So I ended up, um, yeah, leaving a job. I was working as an executive kind of manager team. In the end, like I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing now. I work from home now and I, I, I have been for quite some time. And just focusing on, on managing it. Well, work understanding when you first went through it and you were having to call in sick? Well, I was just pretty stupid and I never I never really did. I never called in sick. I was kind of managing the team and stuff. So I would I would arrive at work with my heat pack, um, mm. with my <laughs> with my painkillers and probably look like, you know, death warmed up and sit through meetings and just push myself so hard that I think the decision to, to leave, my decision to leave was the best thing that I could have done for my health. Absolutely. Mm. You need to do that. Put yourself first. Something that I need to learn sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it's hard and it's frustrating because I, I, I get frustrated that, you know, there's not better treatments and that they haven't found a cure to mm. something that's such a common disease. And the fact that I, you know, I don't, I don't blame anyone for the fact that I hadn't heard about it um, until I was, you know, 33 or whatever. But, you know, I just feel like it needs to be treated better and there needs to there needs to be more investigation to work towards a cure. Mm. And when you do hear all of the stories around people and their diagnosis, you know, the average is seven to ten seven to twelve years for a diagnosis to come through. 
there really needs to be some change about that because women shouldn't be going through this in future. Yeah, I think so. I, I would hate, you know, for future generations that just, it needs to be mentioned, you know, um, in schools and at, you know, sex ed and, you know, and all of that awareness and, and even just talking about periods. I remember, I mean, we did a bit, but it was not common. No. No, I remember the boys also got took out of the class because it was girls in rum, one room, boys <laughs> in the other. You know, we learn all about periods. They learn about what they go through, which is which is good. But I also think that if the conversation of endometriosis were to start in schools, the guys should sit through it as well because it not only affects us, but, you know, our partners, um, men who may be working with someone, brothers, fathers, there's so Definitely. many people. It's not just the women who are suffering. Surrounding, like, the support groups around them need to know. Mm. A hundred percent. And yeah, no, I, I found that it's been such a journey. Like I, I went into hospital pretty blind, just thinking I'd take, you know, a weekend off work and I, I rushed back to work and then got complications from that first surgery because of that. And then, you know, like, and I remember my partner saying, cause I, I kind of played it down. I was like, you know, they're just going to go in and cut off the cyst and you know, it'll be fine. And you wake up and I was in hospital for two nights with tubes and catheters and, and a whole bunch. And I just, I think I, I, I underplayed and I still do actually, I'm still guilty of that. I underplay my own pain because mm. I've become so used to being in pain. Yeah. I think we all do. Just mm. like, oh, that's the norm. I'm fine. I'll push through. But it's not normal. It's not normal to wake up in pain every day. <laughs> that's not normal and it shouldn't be the norm. Exactly right. And what you've actually done, which is really good, is written a blog and, and shared your experiences and tips when it comes to going in having surgery for the first time. I wish this list was with me when I first went under because, oh boy, oh, thank it's you. quite a journey. It's quite a, well, interesting roller coaster. So you go on in the blog to talk about the bowel prep, which no one ever mentions until you're literally about to go in a couple of days beforehand. Mm. That's not a fun time, let's be honest. No, no. And the first time I did it as well, there was a power outage. So I was literally on the toilet in the dark falling over things and it was freezing um and yeah it just made it just made it all that more um enjoyable wow all right so that aside if you've been through it you know exactly what we're talking about but it needs to be done because it means that the doctors can get in there and have a really good look around um next up then you go on to talk about the actual surgery and what happens mm -hmm. and then you talk about your recovery which for everyone is going to be different but, um, yeah, you mentioned that, oh, I only need a couple of days off, ended up having to take more time off. And I think the recovery is key because you don't want to rush back, do you? No. And I think it's interesting to note, or at least interesting for me, that each one of my surgeries has been different in terms of, I mean, the surgeries themselves have been different, but the recovery has been different as well. And I think it's just preparing yourself for the fact that I think I, I heard someone else speak about it, but it's not a linear journey. It's going to be, there's going to be ups. There's going to be downs and you just have to be patient. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And I think it's as much of a mental game as a physical one, really. So with this blog as well, you have spoken about what to do pre-surgery, what to take to hospital, what to do post-surgery. It's just this great little list. My go-to would really be um, a super long phone charger for a uh, phone cable for when you're in the hospital. 
that really helped me. Um, a heat pack. I got a rechargeable heat pack, which I just never left my side for about um, two years. It was like one of those blankets, little kitty blankets that you have on your two. Headphones. Yes. Especially if you're sharing a room with someone else. It makes a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The iPad or books just to keep yourself entertained. Mm -hmm. Then post-surgery. I think this is a really fantastic idea and... You took notes of um, when you were given medications in hospital on your phone. So then when you were discharged, you knew what you were kind of doing and what you had been taking like, as a reference point. Yeah, I found, that, I found that a lot of information as well was given to me in hospital when I was really groggy. I had no idea what was going yep. on. So my surgeon came to see me straight away and we had a long chat that I can't remember. I noted down everything that I could on my phone when it was happening as well as the meds because it was helpful for me when I got back home just to be able to monitor if I was needing more or less particularly after the first surgery, um, I ended up with a, um, just a complication after the surgery. So it was helpful just for me to monitor that. So I thought that was a good tip. One of the greatest ones on this list is pillows for the car ride home. <laughs> yes, I think I stole that from someone else, but um, definitely putting a pillow, I, I've got a U-shaped pillow that I could put around my back and then between my belly and the, um, the seatbelt. Yep. And high-waist undies, actually. That's Ooh, a good yes. one. They're all, all really low. You've got to go one of the two so that they don't either dig into your incision sites or they come up nice nice and high and cover your, your, your swollen belly. Mm, really good advice. And the one that you wrap up with is try to get up and walk a bit in the first few days, but mostly rest. It is tempting just to stay bedridden, but just getting moving that tiny bit really can help you. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you're experiencing that weird shoulder pain, that deferred yes. pain. Get the gas which, moving. Yeah, which I think if, if someone hadn't told me, I would have been so confused by because you're like, where did they operate? Um, so I got, I got quite, I got quite severe um, pain in my shoulders after the first couple of surgeries and I learned a lot. The first one, I pushed myself too hard. The second surgery, I probably rested too much. I went the other way. And the third one, I think I got the balance just right. But I suppose really do whatever works the best for you and you can only do as much as you can do in your situation. And I think that's why I like to write, write the blog articles just mm. about, um, I think there were things that I wished I'd been able to read, you know, all of those years ago. Um, and if I can even just make one person feel more comfortable or less alone with their diagnosis, I think um, I'll feel good about that. So your article under the knife, the blog is on the Endometriosis Australia website, but you've also got a Facebook page, which we can check out more stuff. And where else? This is your opportunity to plug away. Um, yeah. So I, I've actually written probably now four or five articles for Endometriosis Australia. So I write, I write a monthly article and I share them on my Instagram, which is at acrostics. So search up Rachel, give her a follow. That's what I have found is by connecting to Endo Sisters, the Endo Warriors, it gives you that extra support, even though it might not be face-to-face, -face, virtually you're able to get that little uh, helping hand that you need. Yeah, just just helps you feel a bit less alone. And, you know, there are so many, um, you know, uh, there are 2 million people worldwide mm. that suffer with this condition. So you're definitely not alone, but it's when you're lying on the bathroom floor or having a terrible period or feeling weird pain, it's so easy to feel alone and it's so easy to feel, I don't know, broken. I think it's important to always acknowledge and remember that, you know, the more that we talk about these things, the more that we raise awareness, the closer that we are to finding a cure. So that is my hope. Absolutely, Rachel. I hope with you 
And I hope that one day we get to say that endometriosis has been ended. Thank you so much for chatting on this podcast and being so brave, sharing such a personal story. Are you feeling good at the moment? Today I am feeling good. I did, and I'm, I'm writing about this in my next blog. I, I did experience the most brutal period of my life um, two weeks ago, but I'm in the middle of, and I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm feeling good today. Okay. Well, sending all the get well wishes in the world. We look forward to seeing that on your blog. And thank you once again for chatting on Living With Endo. No problem. Thanks for having me. Such an amazing story there from Rachel Burke. You can see more of her blogs. Check it out at endometriosisaustralia.org. While you're there, find out more information on how you can take part in Endometriosis Awareness Month. It is right now. It's happening right now. It's all through March, so make sure you wear your yellow, show your support, get there, and we look forward to chatting with you soon on the next episode of Living with Endo, the A to Z of endometriosis. Stay safe, stay well, and be kind to each other.